Section 9 of The Fair Maid of Perth, or St. Valentine's Day. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Fair Maid of Perth, or St. Valentine's Day, by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter 7 this quarrel may draw blood another day henry the fourth part one the conclave of citizens appointed to meet for investigating the affray of the preceding evening had now assembled the workroom of simon glover was filled to crowding by personages of no little consequence some of whom wore black velvet cloaks and gold chains around their necks they were, indeed, the fathers of the city, and there were baileys and deacons in the honoured number. There was an ireful and offended air of importance upon every brow as they conversed together, rather in whisper than aloud or in detail. Busiest among the busy, the little important assistant of the previous night, Oliver Proudfoot by name and bonnet-maker by profession, was bustling among the crowd much after the manner of the seagull, which flutters, screams, and sputters most at the commencement of a gale of wind, though one can hardly conceive what the bird has better to do than to fly to its nest and remain quiet till the gale is over. Be that as it may, Master Proudfoot was in the midst of the crowd, his fingers upon every one's button, and his mouth in every man's ear, embracing such as were near to his own stature, that he might more closely and mysteriously utter his sentiments, and standing on tiptoe and supporting himself by the cloak collars of tall men, that he might dole out to them also the same share of information. He felt himself one of the heroes of the affair, being conscious of the dignity of superior information on the subject as an eyewitness, and much disposed to push his connection with the scuffle a few points beyond the modesty of truth. It cannot be said that his communications were in especial curious and important, consisting chiefly of such assertions as these. It is all true by St. John. I was there and saw it myself, was the first to run to the fray. And if it had not been for me and another stout fellow who came in about the same time, they had broken into Simon Glover's house, cut his throat, and carried his daughter off to the mountains. It is too evil usage not to be suffered, neighbor Crookshank, not to be endured, neighbor Glass, not to be born neighbors Balneves, Rollock, and Christison? It was a mercy that I and that stout fellow came in, was it not, neighbor and worthy Bailey Cragdelly? These speeches were dispersed by the busy bonnet-maker into sundry ears. Bailey Cragdelly, a portly gilt brother, the same who had advised the prorogation of their civic council to the present place and hour, a big, burly, good-looking man, shook the deacon from his cloak with pretty much the grace with which a large horse shrugs off the importunate fly that has beset him for ten minutes, and exclaimed, "'Silence, good citizens, here comes Simon Glover, in whom no man ever saw falsehood. We will hear the outrage from his own mouth.' Simon, being called upon to tell his tale, did so with obvious embarrassment, which he imputed to a reluctance that the burg should be put in deadly feud with any one upon his account. 
It was, he dared to say, a masking or revel on the part of the young gallants about court, and the worst that might come of it would be that he would put iron stanchions on his daughter's window in case of such another frolic. Why, then, if this were a mere masking or mummery, said Craig Daly, our townsman, Harry of the Wind, did far wrong to cut off a gentleman's hand for such a harmless pleasantry, and the town may be brought to a heavy fine for it, unless we secure the person of the mutilator. Our lady forbid, said the Glover. Did you know what I do, you would be as much afraid of handling this matter as if it were glowing iron. But since you will needs put your fingers in the fire, truth must be spoken, and, come what will, I must say that the matter might have ended ill for me and mine, but for the opportune assistance of Henry Gow, the armorer, well known to you all. "'And mine also was not a-wanting,' said Oliver Proudfoot, "'though I do not profess to be utterly so good a swordsman as our neighbor Henry Gow. "'You saw me, neighbor Glover, at the beginning of the fray?' "'I saw you after the end of it, neighbor,' answered the Glover dryly. "'True, true, I had forgot you were in your house while the blows were going, "'and could not survey who was dealing them.' "'Peace, neighbor Proudfoot, I prithee peace,' said Craig Daly, who was obviously tired of the tuneless screeching of the worthy deacon. "'There is something mysterious here,' said the bailie, "'but I think I spy the secret. Our friend Simon is, as you all know, a peaceful man, and one that will rather sit down with wrong than put a friend, or say a neighborhood, in danger to seek his redress.' Thou, Henry, who art never wanting where the burg needs a defender, tell us what thou knowest of this matter. Our smith told his story to the same purpose which we have already related, and the meddling maker of bonnets added as before, And thou sawest me there, honest smith, didst thou not? Not I in good faith, neighbor, answered Henry, but you are a little man, you know, and I might overlook you. This reply produced a laugh at Oliver's expense, who laughed for company, but added doggedly, I was one of the foremost to the rescue for all that. Why, where wert thou then, neighbor? said the smith, for I saw you not, and I would have given the worth of the best suit of armor I ever wrought to have seen as stout a fellow as thou at my elbow. I was no farther off, however, honest smith, and whilst thou wert laying on blows as if on an anvil, I was parrying those that the rest of the villains aimed at thee behind thy back, and that is the cause thou sawest me not. I have heard of smiths of old time who had but one eye, said Henry. I have two, but they are both set in my forehead, and so I could not see behind my back, neighbor. The truth is, however, persevered Master Oliver, there I was, and I will give Master Bailey my account of the matter, for the smith and I were first up to the fray. Enough at present, said the Bailey, waving to Master Proudfoot an injunction of silence. The pre-recognition of Simon Glover and Henry Gow would bear out a matter less worthy of belief, and now, my masters, your opinion what should be done. Here are all our burgher rights broken through and insulted, and you may well fancy that it is by some man of power, since no less dared have attempted such an outrage. My masters, it is hard on flesh and blood to submit to this. The laws have framed us of lower rank than the princes and nobles, yet it is against reason to suppose that we will suffer our houses to be broken into, and the honor of our women insulted without some redress." It is not to be endured, answered the citizens unanimously. 
Here Simon Glover interfered with a very anxious and ominous countenance. I hope still that all was not meant so ill as it seemed to us, my worthy neighbours, and I, for one, would cheerfully forgive the alarm and disturbance to my poor house, providing the fair city were not brought into jeopardy for me. I beseech you to consider who are to be our judges that are to hear the case, and give or refuse redress. I speak among neighbours and friends, and therefore I speak openly. The king, God bless him, is so broken in mind and body that he will but turn us over to some great man amongst his counsellors who shall be in favour for the time. Perchance he will refer us to his brother, the Duke of Albany, who will make our petition for righting of our wrongs the pretense for squeezing money out of us, we will none of Albany for our judge, answered the meeting with the same unanimity as before. Or perhaps, added Simon, he will bid the Duke of Rothsay take charge of it, and the wild young prince will regard the outrage as something for his gay companions to scoff at, and his minstrels to turn into song. Away with Rothsay, he is too gay to be our judge, again exclaimed the citizens simon emboldened by seeing he was reaching the point he aimed at yet pronouncing the dreaded name with a half whisper next added would you like the black douglas better to deal with there was no answer for a minute they looked on each other with fallen countenances and blanched lips but henry smith spoke out boldly and in a decided voice the sentiments which all felt but none else dared give words to the black douglas to judge betwixt a burgher and a gentleman nay a nobleman for all i know or care the black devil of hell sooner you are mad father simon so much as to name so wild a proposal there was again a silence of fear and uncertainty which was at length broken by bailey cragdelly who looking very significantly to the speaker replied you are confident in a stout doublet neighbour smith or you would not talk so boldly i am confident of a good heart under my doublet such as it is bailey answered the undaunted henry and though i speak but little my mouth shall never be padlocked by any noble of them all wear a thick doublet good henry or do not speak so loud reiterated the bailey in the same significant tone there are border men in the town who wear the bloody heart on their shoulder but all this is no reed what shall we do short reed good reed said the smith let us to our provost and demand his countenance and assistance a murmur of applause went through the party and oliver proudfoot exclaimed that is what i have been saying for this half hour and not one of ye would listen to me let us go to our provost said i he is a gentleman himself and ought to come between the burg and the nobles in all matters hush neighbours hush be wary what you say or do said a thin meagre figure of a man whose diminutive person seemed still more reduced in size and more assimilated to a shadow by his efforts to assume an extreme degree of humility and make himself to suit his argument look meaner yet and yet more insignificant than nature had made him pardon me said he i am but a poor pottinger nevertheless i have been bred in paris and learned my humanities and my cursus medendi as well as some that call themselves learned leeches methinks i content this wound and treat it with emollients here is our friend simon glover who is as you all know a man of worship 
think you he would not be the most willing of us all to pursue harsh courses here since his family honour is so nearly concerned and since he blenches away from the charge against these same revellers consider if he may not have some good reason more than he cares to utter for letting the matter sleep it is not for me to put my finger on the sore but alack we all know that young maidens are what i call fugitive essences suppose now an honest maiden i mean in all innocence leaves her window unlatched on st valentine's morn that some gallant cavalier may in all honesty i mean become her valentine for the season and suppose the gallant be discovered may she not scream out as if the visit were unexpected and and bray all this in a mortar and then consider will it be a matter to place the town in feud for the pottinger delivered his opinion in a most insinuating manner but he seemed to shrink into something less than his natural tenuity when he saw the blood rise in the old cheek of simon glover and inflame to the temples the complexion of the redoubted smith the last stepping forward and turning a stern look on the alarmed pottinger broke out as follows thou walking skeleton thou asthmatic gallopot thou poisoner by profession if i thought that the puff of vile breath thou hast left could blight for the tenth part of a minute the fair fame of catherine glover i would pound thee quake-salver in thine own mortar and beat up thy wretched carrion with flour of brimstone the only real medicine in thy booth to make a salve to rub mangy hounds with hold son henry hold cried the glover in a tone of authority no man has title to speak of this matter but me worshipful bailey cragdelly since such is the construction that is put upon my patience i am willing to pursue this riot to the uttermost and though the issue may prove that we had better have been patient you will all see that my catherine hath not by any lightness or folly of hers afforded grounds for this great scandal the bailey also interposed neighbor henry said he we came here to consult and not to quarrel as one of the fathers of the fair city i command thee to forego all evil will and maltalent you may have against master pottinger dwining he is too poor a creature bailey said henry gow for me to harbor feud with i that could destroy him and his booth with one blow of my forehammer peace then and hear me said the official we all are as much believers in the honour of the fair maiden of perth as in that of our blessed lady here he crossed himself devoutly but touching our appeal to our provost are you agreed neighbours to put matter like this into our provost hand being against a powerful noble as is to be feared the provost being himself a nobleman squeaked the pottinger in some measure released from his terror by the intervention of the bailey god knows i speak not to the disparagement of any honourable gentleman whose forebears have held the office he now holds for many years by free choice of the citizens of perth said the smith interrupting the speaker with the tones of his deep and decisive voice i surely said the disconcerted orator by the voice of the citizens how else i pray you friend smith interrupt me not i speak to our worthy and eldest bailey craigdaily according to my poor mind i say that come amongst us how he wills still this sir patrick charteris is a nobleman and hawks will not pick hawks eyes out he may well bear us out in a feud with the highlandmen and do the part of our provost and leader against them 
but whether he that himself wears silk will take our part against broidered cloth and cloth of gold though he may do so against tartan and irish frieze is something to be questioned take a fool's advice we have saved our maiden of whom i never meant to speak harm as truly i knew none they have lost one man's hand at least thanks to harry smith and to me added the little important bonnet-maker and to oliver proudfoot as he tells us continued the pottinger who contested no man's claim to glory provided he was not himself compelled to tread the perilous paths which led to it i say neighbors since they have left a hand as a pledge they will never come in Couverfew street again why in my simple mind we were best to thank our stout townsmen and the town having the honor and these rakehells the loss that we should hush the matter up and say no more about it these pacific counsels had their effect with some of the citizens who began to nod and look exceedingly wise upon the advocate of acquiescence with whom notwithstanding the offence so lately given simon glover seemed also to agree in opinion but not so henry smith who seeing the consultation at a stand took up the speech in his usual downright manner i am neither the oldest nor the richest among you neighbors and i am not sorry for it years will come if one lives to see them and i can win and spend my penny like another by the blaze of the furnace and the wind of the bellows but no man ever saw me sit down with wrong done in word or deed to our fair town if man's tongue and man's hand could write it neither will i sit down with this outrage if i can help it i will go to the provost myself if no one will go with me he is a knight it is true and a gentleman of free and true-born blood as we all know since wallace's time who settled his great-grandsire amongst us but if he were the proudest nobleman in the land he is the provost of perth and for his own honour must see the freedoms and immunities of the burgh preserved ay and i know he will i have made a steel doublet for him and have a good guess at the kind of heart that it was meant to cover surely said bailey craigdally it would be to no purpose to stir at court without sir patrick charteris's countenance the ready answer would be go to your provost you borrow loons so neighbors and townsmen if you will stand by my side i and our pottinger dwining will repair presently to kinfons with syme glover the jolly smith and gallant oliver proudfoot for witnesses to the onslaught and speak with sir patrick charteris in name of the fair town nay said the peaceful man of medicine leave me behind i pray you i lack audacity to speak before a belted knight never regard that neighbour you must go said bailey craigdally the town hold me a hot-headed carl for a man of threescore sime glover is the offended party we all know that harry gow spoils more harness with his sword than he makes with his hammer and our neighbour proudfoot who take his own word is at the beginning and end of every fray in perth is of course a man of action we must have at least one advocate amongst us for peace and quietness and thou pottingar must be the man away with you sirs get your boots and your beasts horse and haddock i say and let us meet at the east port that is if it is your pleasure neighbours to trust us with the matter there can be no better read and we will all avouch it said the citizens if the provost take our part as the fair town hath a right to expect we may bell the cat with the best of them it is well then neighbours answered the bailey 
So said, so shall be done. Meanwhile, I have called the whole town council together about this hour, and I have little doubt, looking round the company, that as so many of them who are in this place have resolved to consult with our provost, the rest will be compliant to the same resolution. And therefore, neighbors and good burghers of the fair city of Perth, horse and haddock, as I said before, and meet me at the east port." A general acclamation concluded the sitting of this species of privy council, or lords of the articles, and they dispersed the deputation to prepare for the journey, and the rest to tell their impatient wives and daughters of the measures they had taken to render their chambers safe in future against the intrusion of gallants at unseasonable hours. While nags are saddling, and the town council debating, or rather putting in form what the leading members of their body had already adopted, it may be necessary, for the information of some readers, to state in distinct terms what is more circuitously intimated in the course of the former discussion. It was the custom at this period, when the strength of the feudal aristocracy controlled the rights, and frequently insulted the privileges of the royal burghs of Scotland, that the latter, where it was practicable, often chose their provost, or chief magistrate, not out of the order of the merchants, shopkeepers, and citizens, who inhabited the town itself, and filled up the role of the ordinary magistracy, but elected to that pre-eminent state some powerful nobleman, or baron, in the neighborhood of the burgh, who was expected to stand their friend at court in such matters as concerned their common weal, and to lead their civil militia to fight, whether in general battle or in private feud, reinforcing them with their own feudal retainers. This protection was not always gratuitous. The provosts sometimes availed themselves of their situation to an unjustifiable degree, and obtained grants of lands and tenements belonging to the common good or public property of the burgh, and thus made the citizens pay dear for the countenance which they afforded. Others were satisfied to receive the powerful aid of the townsmen in their own feudal quarrels, with such other marks of respect and benevolence as the burgh over which they presided were willing to gratify them with, in order to secure their active services in case of necessity. The baron, who was the regular protector of a royal burgh, accepted such freewill offerings without scruple, and repaid them by defending the rights of the town, by arguments in the council and by bold deeds in the field the citizens of the town or as they loved better to call it the fair city of perth had for several generations found a protector and provost of this kind in the knightly family of charteris lords of kinfons in the neighbourhood of the burgh it was scarcely a century in the time of robert the third since the first of this distinguished family had settled in the strong castle which now belonged to them with the picturesque and fertile scenes adjoining to it but the history of the first settler, chivalrous and romantic in itself, was calculated to facilitate the settlement of an alien in the land in which his lot was cast. We relate it as it is given by an ancient and uniform tradition, which carries in it great indications of truth, and is warrant enough, perhaps, for it insertion in graver histories than the present." 
during the brief career of the celebrated patriot sir william wallace and when his arms had for a time expelled the english invaders from his native country he is said to have undertaken a voyage to france with a small band of trusty friends to try what his presence for he was respected through all countries for his prowess might do to induce the french monarch to send to scotland a body of auxiliary forces or other assistance to aid the scots in regaining their independence the scottish champion was on board a small vessel and steering for the port of dieppe when a sail appeared in the distance which the mariners regarded first with doubt and apprehension and at last with confusion and dismay wallace demanded to know what was the cause of their alarm the captain of the ship informed him that the tall vessel which was bearing down with the purpose of boarding that which he commanded was the ship of a celebrated rover equally famed for his courage strength of body and successful piracies it was commanded by a gentleman named thomas de longueville a frenchman by birth but by practice one of those pirates who called themselves friends to the sea and enemies to all who sailed upon that element he attacked and plundered vessels of all nations like one of the ancient norse sea kings as they were termed whose dominion was upon the mountain waves the master added that no vessel could escape the rover by flight so speedy was the bark he commanded and that no crew however hardy could hope to resist him when as was his usual mode of combat he threw himself on board at the head of his followers wallace smiled sternly while the master of the ship with alarm in his countenance and tears in his eyes described to him the certainty of their being captured by the red rover a name given to de longueville because he usually displayed the blood-red flag which he had now hoisted i will clear the narrow seas of this rover said wallace then calling together some ten or twelve of his own followers boyd curley seaton and others to whom the dust of the most desperate battle was like the breath of life he commanded them to arm themselves and lie flat upon the deck so as to be out of sight he ordered the mariners below excepting such as were absolutely necessary to manage the vessel and he gave the master instructions upon pain of death so to steer as that while the vessel had an appearance of attempting to fly he should in fact permit the red rover to come up with them and do his worst wallace himself then lay down on the deck that nothing might be seen which could intimate any purpose of resistance in a quarter of an hour de longueville's vessel ran on board that of the champion and the red rover casting out grappling irons to make sure of his prize jumped on the deck in complete armor followed by his men who gave a terrible shout as if victory had been already secured but the armed scots started up at once and the rover found himself unexpectedly engaged with men accustomed to consider victory as secure when they were only opposed as one to two or three wallace himself rushed on the pirate captain and a dreadful strife began betwixt them with such fury that the others suspended their own battle to look on and seemed by common consent to refer the issue of the strife to the fate of the combat between the two chiefs the pirate fought as well as man could do but wallace's strength was beyond that of ordinary mortals he dashed the sword from the rover's hand and placed him in such peril that to avoid being cut down he was fain to close with the scottish champion in hopes of overpowering him in the grapple 
In this also he was foiled. They fell on the deck, locked in each other's arms, but the Frenchman fell undermost, and Wallace, fixing his grasp upon his gorget, compressed it so closely, notwithstanding it was made of the finest steel, that the blood gushed from his eyes, nose, and mouth, and he was only able to ask for quarter by signs. His men threw down their weapons and begged for mercy when they saw their leader thus severely handled. The victor granted them all their lives, but took possession of their vessel and detained them prisoners. When he came in sight of the French harbor, Wallace alarmed the place by displaying the rover's colors, as if de Longueville was coming to pillage the town. The bells were rung backward, horns were blown, and the citizens were hurrying to arms when the scene changed. The Scottish lion on his shield of gold was raised above the piratical flag, and announced that the champion of Scotland was approaching, like a falcon with his prey in his clutch. He landed with his prisoner, and carried him to the court of France, where, at Wallace's request, the robberies which the pirate had committed were forgiven, and the king even conferred the honor of knighthood on Sir Thomas de Longueville, and offered to take him into his service. But the rover had contracted such a friendship for his generous victor, that he insisted on uniting his fortunes with those of Wallace, with whom he returned to Scotland, and fought by his side in many a bloody battle, where the prowess of Sir Thomas de Longueville was remarked as inferior to that of none, save of his heroic conqueror. His fate also was more fortunate than that of his patron. Being distinguished by the beauty as well as strength of his person, he rendered himself so acceptable to a young lady, heiress of the ancient family of Charteris, that she chose him for her husband, bestowing on him with her hand the fair baronial castle of King Fawns, and the domains annexed to it. Their descendants took the name of Charteris as connecting themselves with their maternal ancestors, the ancient proprietors of the property, though the name of Thomas de Longueville was equally honored amongst them, and the large two-handed sword with which he mowed the ranks of war was, and is still, preserved among the family muniments. Another account is that the family name of de Longueville himself was Charteris. The estate afterwards passed to a family of Blairs and is now the property of Lord Grey. These barons of Kinfounds from father to son held for several generations the office of provost of Perth, the vicinity of the castle and town rendering it a very convenient arrangement for mutual support. The Sir Patrick of this history had more than once led out the men of Perth to battles and skirmishes with the restless Highland depredators, and with other enemies, foreign and domestic. True it is, he used sometimes to be weary of the slight and frivolous complaints unnecessarily brought before him, and in which he was requested to interest himself. Hence he had sometimes incurred the charge of being too proud as a nobleman, or too indolent as a man of wealth, and one who was too much addicted to the pleasures of the field and the exercise of feudal hospitality to bestir himself upon all and every occasion when the fair town would have desired his active interference. But, notwithstanding that this occasioned some slight murmuring, the citizens, upon any serious cause of alarm, were wont to rally around their provost, and were warmly supported by him both in counsel and action. End of section 9